Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But, of course, today uh, we are all here to welcome Ben Markovitz. Very excited. Um, we've got the third book in a trilogy, and I have not had the blessing of having read all three of them, but I would imagine perhaps some of you have. Um, so we're very excited to, to hear him read from his most current book, which has been lauded on, on many, many a list, both here and abroad. Um, he has lived in many places, Texas, London, and Berlin, for example. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta get around, gotta make sure you uh, you see the world and uh, he's been writing for quite a while he's edited a left-wing cultural mag although and according to my notes I don't know what that actually is so he's uh, keeping mum about it um, and uh, this is um, this is as I mentioned the third in a series and he's written other novels as well so uh, I'm gonna stop mumbling away and just welcome Ben Markovitz and let's enjoy thanks thanks for having me Emily oops I better look at the stare at this um, so this is, it's the third novel in a trilogy, but from my salesman point of view, let me say that you can read it first. It can be a gateway drug to the trilogy, or it can be your methadone treatment out of the trilogy. Uh, I, tell my, I teach creative writing as well, and I tell my students that if you can't describe what your book is about at a cocktail party, that may be because you don't know what it's about and you haven't worked it out yet. And then I think about the book that I've just published, and I start to sweat a little bit. So this is the best I can come up with by way of short summary. It's a novel about a writer who has inherited some unpublished manuscripts from someone he used to teach high school with. And he uses these manuscripts as a way of finding out more about his dead friend's life. Now, there are a couple of complicating factors. One is that the, not, the writer who inherits the manuscripts is me. He has my name. And the other complicating factor is that the manuscripts are about Lord Byron, and they describe scenes in Byron's life that involve moments of questionable sexual aggression. And there was an incident in the teacher's life, the guy who supposedly wrote the manuscripts, that got him kicked out of a school. So the question the book turns on is what can we know about people from the books they write, and in what ways are they guilty uh, for their sexual inclinations. Uh, it's split between a contemporary narrative and a, and a historical one. Do I have a, who would rather hear historical sections from the book? I offer the, the full, two people, three, who would rather hear the contemporary? I think the contemporary has it. I, I, I have a taster of the historical that I can give if, if, if I haven't um, beaten you to death with the, the contemporary one. So I'll do the contemporary one. What do you need to know? I think all of it is pretty clear from the introduction I've just given. 
I'll just say that I'm reading in my own voice and I'll try to get as close to that voice as possible. I remember someone once said of Dan Marino that he was too stupid even to act himself. Um, turns out it's quite hard to act yourself, uh, so I'll do the best I can. The oddest, saddest reading I ever gave was at something called the Society for the Publication of the Dead. One of those vague, grand titles that shows up just what it's meant to conceal. Humbleness, obscurity, insignificance. The society was run out of the home of the club president, Mike Lowenthal, a tax lawyer who lived in Queens. Once a quarter, the members got together in his living room and ate unidentifiable stews and talked about their progress. Progress was a big word with them. I heard it again and again. Lowenthal had founded the society, he told me over the phone, in order to bring into one boat people who could be of mutual service to each other. He meant people who had inherited unpublished manuscripts. The children of memoirists and closet novelists, the parents of precocious suicides. So far, he said there had been a lot of support, but not much service. They were very excited to have a speaker. In this business, he said, there aren't very many success stories. Is that what I am? I asked. Of course, all he wanted to hear about was Peter's books, not my own. Peter Sullivan was a guy I used to teach high school with years ago. When he died, he bequeathed me a few manuscripts, novels about Byron as it happens, which I managed to get published. Mike considered me successful as an editor. I was staying with my sister in New Haven and got the commuter service into Grand Central, then transferred to the 7 train and rode it all the way out to Flushing. For some reason, I found this journey especially dispiriting. To come into Manhattan and go out of it again, to feel yourself diminishing on the way to the suburbs into a, into a different kind of anonymity. Mike's enthusiasm for my success had touched a nerve. Since taking up Peter's cause, I had published little of my own work. Nothing but Playing Days, a quiet memoir of my first long year after college, which I spent playing minor league basketball in Germany. It came out in England first. My American publishers were still undecided about it. The book had received a more muted critical reception than Peter's novels, and I found myself struggling on the long train ride to Queens against the inevitable comparisons. A dull, overcast, late summer day, as pale as December, and in the course of my journey, the street lamps came on without discernible effect on the general whiteness. After five years in the fiction business, I should have learned my lesson. Writers get rewarded according to their exaggerations. This explains why, compared with the real thing, most novels seem so vivid and unnatural, the qualities by which critics and readers tend to recognize good writing. What I aimed at in playing days wasn't vividness. It was the mildly unusual, overcomplicated quality of the story you tell on coming home from work. Our lives are governed mostly by technicalities. Literature ignores them because they are boring. We stopped at 33rd Street, 40th Street, 51st Street stations. I'm inventing the numbers, but the impression they made somehow reinforced my case. The streets below us, viewed sidelong from the elevated tracks and partly obscured by window shine, seemed more or less indistinguishable. Sometimes I even saw the same shopping chains reproduced in slightly different order. The variations in people are hardly more significant. After an hour of self-justification, I had the stuffed up, hungry feeling you get from eating too much of the same thing. So I rested my head against the glass and closed my eyes. 
Flushing was the last stop. There was no danger of overshooting, and I was plenty early in any case to be at Lowenthal's house by 7.30. Drifting off, I played over again a sort of internal dialogue which originated God knows where, but had become familiar to me over the past few weeks. It's what I thought about sometimes instead of sleeping. Maybe it was the same thing as sleep. Someone said, do you find this passage of time acceptable? A voice not exactly my own. Maybe my father's or brother's. Yes, I always answered. After a moment, it spoke again. Is there anything you have to do? No, I said. There's nothing I have to do. Then why not accept it? said the voice. Then other people intruded themselves. I could hear them like you hear your parents' guests arrive while you lie upstairs in bed. Is this where you get off for Shea Stadium? That's why they call it Shea Station, lady. I beg your pardon, that's not what they call it, and so on. By the time I woke up, the artificial light of the subway car was sharp enough to hurt my eyes. It was dark outside, and I felt oddly intimidated by the hurry of the commuters going home. Mike Lowenthal lived in a gray clambered row house about 10 minutes walk from the station. His wife and 17-year-old son had died in a car accident five years before. This is one of the first things he told me as he showed me inside. There was a woman he called his supermaid hustling around the kitchen, a middle-aged Polish woman named Marta, bulky, sweating, with the wide shoulders and hips of a Matisse or a Henry Moore. Don't introduce me, she said. I don't have time to talk. My hands are dirty. Don't shake my hands. My wife was the only one who could get her to do anything, Mike said. Now she bosses me around. Look at me bossing, she called out. Listen, you're a little early. Before the rest of this crowd arrive, why don't I show you something? I followed his back up the staircase running through the center of the house. He had the ordinary loose-skinned face of a middle-aged working man, but from behind he looked like some strange vegetable with all its weight gathered in the middle and tapering away to the top and bottom. When he reached the landing, he turned towards the rear of the house into a boy's bedroom. Pinned to the door, a large official-looking sign, beware of the teenager. There was an unmade single bed in the room under a window that overlooked the backs of the row houses. Porch lights glared as regular as street lamps. Mike sat down at his son's desk, wheezing a little from the stairs. There was nowhere for me to sit but the bed. Something about it, however, made me hesitate, and the thought crossed my mind that the sheets hadn't been changed in five years. He lifted a thin sheaf of papers from a drawer, cheaply bound and covered in clear plastic, and laid it out carefully on the leather of his son's desk. It looked like a senior essay, and was titled, Not the First Love Story in the World, by Stephen Lowenthal. It cost him some effort to rise to his feet again. I'm going to get out of your hair. What you don't need is me standing over your shoulder. Then, in a sudden change of tone, what are we doing here? Let me get you a drink. He put his hands quietly together in a feminine gesture. It struck me that he was waiting for me to make room. At that moment, the doorbell rang, and Marta called up to him something unintelligible. They're playing my song, he said, and moved awkwardly past me to the head of the stairs where he stopped and turned again. We looked at each other for a moment, and I felt strongly the need to add something. Then the bell rang again, the quick double ring of social, light-hearted impatience. Take as long as you want, he said. This crowd is good for nothing till the food arrives. Once he was gone, I closed his son's door and spent a few minutes looking over the bedroom, which still smelled of sleep. 
Then I sat down to read not the first love story in the world. The opening paragraph was a single sentence. They say that grief is transient. As I skimmed the rest of it, the doorbell continued to ring. A young man, who seems to be unnamed, falls in love with a girl from his high school chemistry class, Laura Salzberger. He's a very nice young man in most public ways, a good student, but he imagines doing all kinds of unspeakable things to her. Because of his terrible imagination, he breaks out in a sweat whenever he sees her and can never manage more than the most perfunctory conversation. Eventually, he decides to announce his feelings for her in prose. He writes a story about a beautiful girl named Laura Salzberger, who dies tragically and mysteriously, and is mourned for the rest of his life by the awkward young man who never had the courage to express his feelings for her. A short story, then, or a novella 50-odd pages long. I wondered if he meant to suggest that the protagonist himself had been responsible for the girl's death. This is the kind of thing teenage writers like to hint at. Regardless, the story was more or less unpublishable and contained many of the simple flaws, easy to spot but awkward to correct, which had become familiar to me in my teaching. Sudden shifts in tense and point of view, false oppositions, grammatical carelessness, a tendency to rely on the first phrase or thought that comes to hand, which is usually the phrase or thought left lying around on the surface of the imagination by bad movies and books. Laura Salzberger had a beautiful smile that lit up not only most rooms, but her own blue eyes. It's common in creative writing seminars to talk about the difference between the reader's truth and the writer's truth. In other words, about the gap between what you see in your mind and what you can put on the page. But this difference matters little in practice. Most young writers put on the page exactly what it is they do see, a world of bright, textureless, unconnected parts, some of it borrowed from other books. And then I thought, and he's dead, and he's been dead five years, and it's quite possible that this story is basically true, that Stephen Lowenthal had a crush on a girl from his chemistry class, his first real sexual crush and that he imagined doing all kinds of perfectly acceptable things with her, which he felt terrible about from the point of view of his decent, daylight, pre-sexual personality, and that he never got the chance to reconcile himself, as most of us do and should, to certain aspects of his human nature. One of the things I had learned after three years in teaching is that my training had taught me to distinguish between good and bad writing, but not between what was true and what wasn't. I'd had kids handing in stories about their alcoholic mothers you could have sworn were lifted from the plots of daytime television until you saw them shivering in your office, holding themselves by the arms to keep from crying. What's happening to these people, you think, that it comes out so badly written? Don't they suffer too? For a minute, I sat at Stephen Lowenthal's desk calming down, saying to myself, what are you getting worked up about? Below me, I heard Mike's voice, not the words themselves, but the muffled shape of the words, diminishing as he moved away from the stairs in the hall. More guests. And the feeling returned to me that I was lying half asleep in my parents' house and listening to one of their parties. Another minute, I thought. Another minute. Then decided I was probably angry about being somewhere I didn't want to be and doing something I didn't want to do. And at that point, I stood up and went downstairs. When I walked into the living room, there were nine or ten people sitting down, haphazardly with food on their laps. 
The oldest was in his 80s, bald and straight-backed, with thick rolls of skin on his forehead and the back of his neck. I learned afterwards he had recently lost a great deal of weight, Henry Pantolini. He offered to make space for me on the piano seat. There's not much of me, he said with a kind of pride. I sat down for a minute beside him. I don't play anymore because of my hands, he added, and held up his hands. When I was your age, I used to work nights sweeping floors at the Harry Eichler School in Richmond Hill. They kept a little upright Mason Hamlin in a corner of the gym. Sometimes when I had the place to myself, I played whatever they had on the stand, like bandstand boogie, that kind of thing, for 10, 20 minutes, very spooky and loud. This was my second job, and the rest of my free time was taken up with an accounting degree. It's amazing how hard you can work when you have no choice. Now I get tired rolling out of bed. I could think of nothing to say to any of this, and he took pity. Why don't you get some food? The youngest was Sarah in her mid-twenties, an undergraduate at Queens College. Permed hair, an accommodating blouse, and a dark skirt made of some synthetic material that clung to her thighs when she stood up. She told me within a few minutes of conversation that she was a single mother with a two-year-old child at home. I come here to meet men, that's what I tell people, she joked. This is my fifth meeting and you're the first I've seen, age suitable I mean. Her father, before he died, had written her what started out as a long letter about the year and a half he spent as a teenager in Birkenau. The reason she started school so late is because he needed taking care of and also because of her daughter. The letter by the time he was done was 150 pages long. Some letter, she said. She didn't even look at it before he was dead. But by the time I met her, she had read it five or six times over and always with tears in my eyes. The old bastard. If he does this to me, who had every reason to resent him, what will he do to people he didn't annoy? Marta had made two kinds of stew, one with meat and one without, which bubbled thickly in the kitchen, still in their pots. I moved vaguely towards it through an arch in the living room. Next to the pots were bowls and slices of cheap white bread. I don't know you, a woman said to me, ladle in hand, middle-aged, round-bellied, with a girlish, unpretty face. She wore her red hair in a bob. You're the new kid. Do you normally know everybody? It's a pretty good crew, she said. Crowd, crew. They'd found odd, affectionate ways of referring to each other. I'm sure it is, I said. I stood waiting for her to finish serving herself. I don't know what the thing you say here is, I went on. To new members, I mean. You mean who died? My sister. She didn't have any specially awful story, except she wanted to be a writer and couldn't get published. I teach high school English in Forest Hills. What she wrote is not bad. I don't have any illusions about it either. She died last February, not this year's, but the one before. 45 years old. You know how many manuscripts she left behind? But what do you care? Let me ask you, who died for you? Guy I used to teach high school with in Riverdale. I was also a high school English teacher. Mike interrupted me with a hand on her shoulder. This is our distinguished speaker, he said. And then, can I have a word? He led me to a sidebar in the sitting room where the drinks were kept. I don't know if you had a chance to look at what I showed you, Mike said to me. His voice had dropped. Do you mind talking about your son? Believe me, that's one thing you do get used to. I understand your concerns, though. So far as I know, he was no kind of sexual pervert. But then he was a 17-year-old boy. What I don't know about him could fill a much bigger book than he wrote. Such a vocabulary. In conversation, you were lucky to get a yes or no. 
picked up a lemon and began to cut. Gin and tonic, isn't that what you English types like to drink? He handed me a tall glass and we shifted slightly into a corner of the room. I can guess your next question, he went on. My wife was literary, that's where he gets it from. When I was a young man, just in practice, I joined what has since become, so people tell me, a very fashionable kind of association. I mean a book group. Mostly I was on the lookout for girls. Whenever I made any kind of comment about wouldn't it be nice to clear up this point with the author, you can believe the grief they gave me. Now everybody I show it to, these publishing guys, want to know the same thing. There was no Laura Salzberger in his high school graduating class. But was there a Mira Schultzman, a Rachel Littman, a Deborah Leibowitz? Of course there was. More than that I couldn't say. I wasn't sure if he was angry or enjoying himself or both. His voice had risen again. Next question, he said. Can you tell me anything about how he died? Like I said, a car accident. This isn't an interesting or dramatic kind of death, not like cancer, which seems to get so much press these days. I mean, from you people, the writers, you see, I've been reading your books. There wasn't even some drunk running a red light I could devote myself to putting behind bars. My wife hit a patch of black ice coming off the Whitestone Expressway five years ago last December. Nobody's fault but dumb lucks. She was going about 40 miles an hour. They had just been to visit her mother in Florida. She had the cancer and outlived them both to see the funeral. Somebody, I think it was Delta, used to run a very reasonable shuttle from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia. I came back late from work to nobody home, but you know how it is with flights. There's always delays. Even if the flight comes in, they lose the luggage. Till about midnight, I was perfectly calm and sensible. I brushed my teeth like a good boy. I went to bed. First I can't sleep, and then after 20 minutes of fighting the sheets, my heart begins pounding and I start making calls. It turns out when I stopped being sensible, I was more or less on the money but I didn't invite you here to talk to you about this. No, you wanted to talk to me about publication. He looked up at me and waited. Eventually I said, I can anticipate several difficulties about publication. Let me add, this is a line I've heard myself in one way or another more than 30 times. You see, I keep count. Also, I'm not a publisher, I'm a writer. And what I know about is the trouble I might have selling my own work. It seemed to me that people were listening in, so I continued as quietly as I could. Here's the first problem. Nobody wants long, short stories. Nobody wants short, short stories either, but at least they don't take up much space. What I was thinking of was somebody might write some kind of introduction and bulk it up a little, like you did. Who did you have in mind? He stared at me with a conscious smile and lifted his hands. Look, I'm no writer. It's not just a question of length, I said. There's a problem with the ending. I know what he meant to do, but he hasn't done it. And even if he had, it wouldn't have worked. Listen, don't worry about the ending. That's what I expected you to say. You mean in real life, it's the boy who dies, not the girl. Am I right? That's what seemed to me the problem, too. I mean, if you want to sell this kind of thing on context. I'll be honest with you. Publication for me is just a means to an end. What do you reach with your books, if you don't mind me asking, by way of audience? 50? 60,000? If you're doing well. Look at the box office results they print in the Monday papers after the first weekend of business. Even the flops take in a few hundred thousand in two days. Publication for me is just a stepping stone to the movies, and in the movies you see this kind of thing all the time. Right off the bat, the hero dies, and they show the rest of the picture to explain why. In this case, there is no why. That's what breaks your heart. What this kid went through for puberty, every boy should see. God knows the difference it might have made in my life. It took me four years of college before I had the nerve or opportunity to stick my prick in anything other than my own hand. 
That means about 10 years of unnecessary shame and frustration, but I didn't have the words to describe them. You can imagine what I felt when I first read my son's story. I discovered it a few days after his death on the computer I bought him for his bar mitzvah. Probably what you felt just now, only he wasn't your son and he hadn't just died. Shame, on top of grief, on top of loneliness. But I've been living with that story every day now for five years, and every time I look at it, I see something else. This was not a bad kid. This was a kid going through a difficult transformation who had the talent and the emotional maturity to step outside of himself and put it into words. But the girl he falls in love with doesn't get it. And people, in my personal opinion, will happily pay out 10 bucks 50 or whatever it costs to go to the movies these days to see if at the end of two hours she understands what it means to be a young man. Then he added, Look, and your food's gone cold. Well, I've been chewing your ear off. The girl from Queens College called out, let's get started here. My sitter is costing me 10 bucks an hour. Mike stepped forward, taking up space in the center of the room, and introduced me. I chose to read my preface to Imposture for two reasons. It's what they wanted to hear, and I had written it. This preface tells the story of my inheritance, how I came to know Peter during a stint teaching high school in New York, how we lost touch, the resentment I felt at being saddled with a stack of manuscripts he hadn't had the energy or the luck to see and to print himself. Afterwards, in the Q&A, Mr. Pantolini asked me why, since I didn't know Mr. Patterson well, I had gone to so much trouble to get him published, since he seemed to have little personal feeling for the man. Personal feeling doesn't come into it. I might ask all of you the same thing. Why do you want these manuscripts to be published? It won't bring the people you loved back to life. It will only mean that others can see them more coldly and clearly than you see them yourself. Is that what happens when you publish a book? More or less, I said. Thank you. Any questions? Byronic bit is a bit different. <laughs> Do you want a bit of a, a tiny bit of Byron? Okay, so I, I'll I'll try something which I've tried only once before. Um, I will try to do it in an English accent. It will not be it will not be a good English accent. What? It will not be a good English accent. It won't be a very Byronic English accent, but it will be closer to what I, the voice I had in my mind. Uh, when I wrote it, then, then my own would be. Uh, do you need to know anything? Who knows anything about Byron? He died in Greece. After his divorce, he took up with a woman named Teresa Giuccioli, and he left her to fight for Greek independence. And the bit I'm reading is part of the setup in Genoa when he was still living with Teresa that persuaded him to leave her behind and fight in Greece. I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but it was Trelawney who gave me, if not the first idea, then the final push which amounts to the same thing. Trelawney, whom I hold in no very high regard, though he is tall and handsome enough and wants only clean hands and trousers to give him the appearance of a gentleman. But he was a friend of Shelley and is valuable to me on that account. Besides, it flatters my vanity to see the hero of Conrad, Lara, Manfred, et al. parading before me in the flesh, though he insists rather too violently on the resemblance and somewhat to the detriment of my own. He had come to the Casa Saluzzo on some business about a boat which I had ordered to be built and subsequently tired of, my taste for that particular form of amusement considerably abated by Shelley's drowning. I was at this point, for various reasons, in a process of retrenchment. Trelawney 
offered us he had put up for the winter. For several weeks he stayed with us, but was not much in the way, as he spent most of his days at Casa Negrotto, where the Hunts were living with their brood of Hottentots and Mary. I had foolishly given Shelley my word and consigned several innocent poems, and some not so innocent, to Lee Hunt for a new publication to be named The Liberal, as he meant to be liberal in it with other people's poems and purses. Shelley's death left him totally dependent, and Trelawney made himself useful as a messenger, if nothing else. For Mr. Hunt is either impudent or obsequious, and nothing between, and I had much rather give him my monies than my time. Mary was displeased with me, because she was displeased with everything, but I did what I could for her, which was very little, as she would not accept it. I was at work on Don Juan, and gave her the manuscript pages to copy. For this I paid her a little money, which she did accept. Once a day, if the weather was fine, I walked in the garden with Teresa. Her brother Pietro and their father, Count Gamba, had the apartment below my own and kept a company when I would not. This is an odd, Sisis Beo source of existence, Trelawney remarked to me one day at breakfast. It was my custom to take tea in the garden a little before noon, and sometimes he joined me. There was a fig tree that cast a pleasant shade, and even in October the sun was bright enough to make a few feet of shade desirable. I wonder you can stand it. Do you know what Mary says about you? that you are henpecked to your heart's content. Teresa has a great affection for Mary, I said. I am sorry to find it unreciprocated. When he said nothing, I went on. But Italians feel everything more strongly. Do you know that if her husband were to die, I mean the Count Giuicioli, Teresa would dress herself in mourning from head to toe and maybe even feel a little sorry for herself, though he is a savage, officious old man who tore her from the convent at 17, and since the Pope will not grant them a divorce, his death would be a great practical relief to us. Trelawney can never sit still, unless he is eating. And as there was nothing left to eat, he stood up and looked over the wall to see who was passing. After a few moments, he sat down again and said, You tolerate what no other Englishman of spirit could. It is one thing for an Italian to surround himself like this, with women and brothers. But I believe you are not very pleased with yourself, and Shelley might have forced you into a consciousness of it. If you will forgive me for saying so, I think you feel his absence as much as anyone. You're wrong to think us so very attached to each other. Our friendship began after the age of reason. I have never loved anyone sensibly. But you are right to say that I am restless. I mean in the spring to buy an island in Greece, or a principality in Peru, and set myself up on a large scale. We were presently confined to Genoa, where the government ignored us, but I had a fancy of playing at governments myself. After a few weeks, when he saw no sign of it, Trelawney accepted an invitation to go hunting in the Maremma, and borrowed a horse and left us. And so we passed the winter, and I wrote four more cantos of Don Juan, and saw no one but Teresa and her brother and her father, and the hunts when I could not avoid it, and Mary when she could not avoid me. She always looked at me as if I had only to open the door to let Shelley in, as if it was perfectly willful of me not to open the door. Thanks. These may seem very unconnected. One of the games that the contemporary frame allows me to play is that uh, I expose all my historical sources in them. So what I've set up is the idea that in the historical sections, any deviation from the truth of Byron's life might suggest something about Peter Sullivan's own delinquencies. So I go through the historical sections trying to find out the bits that aren't true to see if they reflect something about Peter. And this allows me to, to show the games that I'm playing, a kind of pen and Teller act. <laughs> Why, why Byron? What drew you to do this story? I've got several very long answers to that. 
Um, one thing is that this is now my sixth novel, and by the time I had come to write the first of these, I had sort of realized what I considered my subject, which was the moment in people's lives when they realize whether or not the place they have made for themselves in the world can adequately express their sense of who they are. And one of the things that was interesting about Byron, he, any fans of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, 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 the Galaxy in here? So there's a moment when Zaphod Beeblebrox goes into a kind of compression chamber that points out to him exactly his proportional relationship to the world, the universe, right? And this destroys everybody because they realize that they're a dot and they're here and the universe is around them. Except for Zaphod Beeblebrox, who is at the center of the universe, and he walks out feeling quite chuffed. So Byron was Zaphod. He was so vividly at the center of his own life, not just because he was such an instant success as a poet, but because he was a lord, but because he slept with his sister, which most of us don't dare to do and probably don't want to do either. Um, so that everyone around him had to deal with the impossible comparisons. And so he seemed a very useful figure to talking about the kind of failures that I was interested in. And one of these failures is a guy called Polidori, who was his doctor. Anybody know about Polidori here? He was Byron's doctor, a very clever and able, good-looking young man who graduated from Edinburgh University in the degree in medicine at 19 and wanted to become a writer. And he accompanied Byron and Shelley and the others in the famous tour when they sat around Lake Geneva writing ghost stories. Except that Polidori was not a great writer, and all the great writers made him feel that. And so he eventually was kicked out of his service. Years later, I mean three years later, um, one of Polidori's contribution to the ghost tale called The Vampire, which had, he'd written at a prompting from Byron, was published anonymously without Polidori's consent by a magazine editor called Henry Coburn, published in the New Monthly Magazine, with a heavy anonymous hint that it was written by Byron, and it became a bestseller. Goethe, in fact, remarked that it was Byron's finest work. And so this is the moment when Polidori can think that, in fact, there is no difference between us. We're the same person, just he has a celebrity and I don't. And so this is sort of the launching pad of his story. And I've been working closer and closer to Byron as the trilogy goes along, but that's one of the long, I've got another long-winded answer, but I think that will do. And how much of the contemporary one is drawn from like real life situations that you've then put together, or, or have you just taken whole segments and well, so in the contemporary one, I'm a writer called Ben Markovitz who has a Radcliffe Fellowship and I'm married to an English woman named Caroline. Um, so there's a certain amount of truth that I can't deny. Uh, the rest of it I'll leave to you, Callum, who know me to decide. Yeah. But the, so one of the reasons I, I played it, two reasons. When I wrote Imposture, the, the story about Polidori, I wrote a preface to outline the kind of manuscript framing device of this teacher, Peter Sullivan. And at the Faber Sales Conference, in which the writers are paraded to see if they can make nice to the sales reps who have to go around all the bookstores and sell your book to them in 10 seconds, uh, I met one of these sales reps who said to me, but is it true, the preface to Imposture, is it true? And I guess she could only have meant, did I not write the book that followed? And I kind of stared at her dumbfounded. Um, and it occurred to me that people take much more on faith than you expect them to. Another example of this, I gave a reading from the second novel, uh, from the anal rape scene in it, in which uh, it becomes clear to Byron's wife that Byron had probably had an affair with his half-sister, Augusta. And someone came to me in the audience afterwards and said, I, if I'd known he'd slept with his sister, I would never have come. Uh, <laughs> the idea that people actually want some kind of truth. And I actually want some kind of Writers like to say that it's the worst question. Everybody asks them how much is true. It seems to me a very natural question. Um, and one that writers especially are interested in. Because as a writer, you're interested in the chemical formula that allows you to get from a base material experience to the finished product. And if you know the finished product, and you know the base material experience, then you can work out the chemical, chemical equation that gets you from one to the other. So a writer has more interest in this question than anybody else. So it seems to me a very natural one, and it's one of the ones I tried to address in, in the book. 
1870, but it has a right well critiques um, uh, within the book, right, of different kinds of bad writing. So I imagine that must be a lot of fun to write. Yeah. Also, I mean, how do you square, you know, what you what you actually do in teaching and then putting this in? Is there a were you kind of ransacking experiences of your own, your students? Well, the, the truth, I am interested in the fact that I can't tell if my students' writing is true or not. That seems odd to me. You know, I sit there judging whether or not it's, it's good, but this goodness question doesn't reveal to me whether or not it's true. And that seems a very curious thing about the business of fiction. Um, so that is something that had motivated me in, in class as well. Uh, one of the games I play in the book is to make fun of the other novels in the trilogy. So nobody likes these novels in the book. Especially in posture, about which I have a lot of hard words to say. Uh, and then finally, towards the end of the novel, you get somebody who says that maybe in posture and a quiet adjustment, which are the two previous novels in the trilogy, are, are okay. Uh, <laughs> what, was the, what was the hardest novel to write? Uh, well, this one, I do Byron's voice in it, and uh, that's obviously a daunting task. Um, for those of you who aren't Byronists, uh, he left behind one of the most famous lost manuscripts ever. His, his memoirs were burnt after his death by his editor and friends who thought it would ruin his reputation. Uh, they had not read it when, when it was burnt. So there's this kind of great holy grail of romantic studies, the lost Byron manuscripts. I don't try to recapture them exactly, uh, but one of the problems with Byron is that he wrote his own life very beautifully, not just in the poems, but in the journals and letters, which I highly recommend if any of you are interested. In. They're really terrific. So I had to ask myself, what, what can I add to the things that Byron himself done is, has done in his own voice? And, and my answer to that was I could do something with his voice that Byron never bothers to do, which is to write fiction. Um, he, doesn't, he writes anecdotes and he write, tells stories, but he doesn't use character, dialogue, and plot to work through situations that reveal themselves, as Jade Austen does. So one of the things I try to do in the Byron sections is to apply Austen-like craft to Byron's voice. Uh, it got okay once you got into the hang of it, but that was quite daunting to do, I think. Do you think he was um, gay, bisexual? I think you have to say he was bisexual. I mean, probably his most significant emotional attachment was to his half-sister, but he also had a lot of gay relationships that meant a lot to him. Um, so I don't know, he didn't want to pick and choose, and I'm, I wouldn't on his behalf either. One of the points I raise in the book is that he was probably a pedophile by our own standards. You know, his relationships with boys were often with very young boys, and maybe one of his most famous lyrics, The Maid of Athens, was written to an 11-year-old girl whose house he was staying in. and. Uh, one of the things I wanted to think about, the reason the book is called Childish Loves, is how can I frame these uncomfortable sexual encounters so that our allegiances are unclear, if that makes sense. So that we sometimes, in fact, we might be rooting for Byron. You know, towards the end of his life, he formed a really hopeless attachment to a young Greek boy who did not reciprocate his feelings whatsoever and abused his power over Byron quite terribly. And yet, Byron was a 35-year-old successful poet. Our sympathies should be with the boy, but they're not entirely. And so that's one of the things I wanted to play with. Yeah, Roth. I, Roth. I'm a big fan of. Um, less of of Kurtzia. Um but Byron does this himself. So one of the reasons I use this sort of form is that Byron's breakthrough poem was called Child Harold's Pilgrimage. In early drafts, it was called Child Burren's Pilgrimage. And one of the things he was selling is the fact that this would reveal to his readership the scandalous life of the handsome lord who 
went on sexual adventures. And in Don Juan and in Beppo, he plays again and again, uh, not just with the fictional form, but with the way the fiction helps reveal the real writer to his audience. And so it seemed to me appropriate in this final novel in which I take on Byron's voice to play a similar game. But Roth was very useful. I mean, one of the things Roth says is that you can't make yourself look good if you're going to play this game. You have to make yourself into an asshole. Um, and I try not to go as far as that, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the things that the two passages were about, well, obviously they were talking about grief, and you said that the novel is largely based on your own life, but is that true of the whole novel? Is the whole novel kind of concerned with grief, and is, and is that also coming out, or is that something that you... So one of the meanings I wanted to, you know, I, I had the, this title in my head as I was writing the book, Childish Loves, and one of the forms that I wanted it to take was the sort of love not just you have of, of your children, but of your childhood. The idea being that for many adults, they think where they went wrong in life is that they betrayed their childhood in some way or another. Um, I'm staying with a guy who, for example, grew up worshiping the Dallas Cowboys and now is a Saints fan. I mean, that's only, that's only a very slight way in which to, but, but serious, so that's, that's a kind of grief I had in mind, and, and, and it's a kind of grief that mattered a lot to Byron. You know, so what the, the first uh, Byronic episode pictures him at 15, before he's famous, before he's attractive to women, and in fact, when he is the victim of not only sexual abuse, but the sexual charms of other people. And yet, by the end of the book, I want the Byron that we see to feel something like nostalgia for that innocent self. So w the kind of grief that maybe I was thinking of was this, this grief for, for um, the way we betray our childhoods to become adults. Yeah. Question? Um, sort of linked with portraying yourself in your fiction. Um, I've talked with a couple of other authors about um, specifically their author's bios. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious whether um, you are ever asked for or if you whether like cover themselves sort of glean that those basic life events to create on there. The, the sort of anecdote that goes with that question is um, Rachel Kushner, who lives here, who wrote Telex from Cuba. Um, she, you know, there's, there's elements of her biography that are very similar to the novel. And she was a little disappointed when they focused heavily on those elements in her author bio. Right. Because uh, it was really more about her mother's family than her own. Um, but, you know, she kind of felt a little weird about that. Um, and I'm just curious whether you have had any say in the way that your own author bio is presented and whether it's... My guess is I wrote the author's bio. Yeah. Um, that yeah. Sure. yeah, my guess is I wrote the author's bio. I don't have any, I don't care much about author's bios. I actually, I never write acknowledgments because it seems to me that they break the voice. I don't know, I mean, I feel maybe unnaturally strongly about this. But you know, you read some intense novel, and then at the end of it you say, big shout out to Joe for giving me his futon to sleep on. <laughs> um, and that always seems odd to me. So uh, even though in the book itself I'm happy to talk about myself as much as I feel like, that, that's a line I won't cross. Was there inspiration for the three books, or is it something that you gradually came towards? I mean. Is it something that could spring to you, or is it...? I, I actually had to write, because I sold it as three books after I'd finished Imposture, and I had to write a proposal that described all of the novels. And I never looked at that proposal again, and it turns out Childish Loves almost exactly adhered to the proposal I'd written five years ago. So there must have been some idea that, that stuck with me in it. Um, the problem, I mean, the main decision I had made is that if I was going to write about Byron, uh, 
one thing I didn't do is turn it all into one big novel because then you write this sprawling, bleeding book that has elements of his life in it but isn't really a novel. And one of the things that the trilogy allowed me to do is to put very clear-cut frames around all the stories and episodes. Um, so the first one is the book about his doctor, the second one is about his wife, and I wanted to make sure that instead of writing sprawling pseudo-history, I wrote novels. And that maybe is, is the most important decision. But also, I was stuck writing three books about Byron. I don't know who I love. But there's the, you know, the, there's the carelessness and misfortune joke, and I don't... Um. How did you go with um, doing the, the research when you were in the UK? Did you go to Canterbury? I'm a very bad archivist and researcher, but the good thing with Byron is most of it is in books that you can buy, and I own a lot of Byron books. Um, so I didn't spend much time going around Newstead, and that's another advantage of this frame, because my Irish uh, American high school teacher lived in New York and <laughs> also didn't go around Newstead. So I, went, I, gave, I gave a reading to the Byron Society in which someone pointed out to me that uh, clergymen in his age never had any beards. Uh, I guess I, I didn't know that. Um, so my, my main inspiration was actually the contemporary literature. And so I read a lot of Byron, I read a lot of Austin, I actually also read a lot of Henry James, especially for the second book. Uh, there's a note in Henry James's correspondence in which he says that he's thinking of tackling the story of Byron's wife because it seemed to him a, a typically Jamesian uh, kind of tale to tell. And so every day I was writing, I'd also read, read some James. What are you working on now? Something contemporary. I tend to think it through. I don't write anything down, but I also tend to have a number of ideas on the bubble for years before I get the time or the opportunity to address them. Uh, and then when I've got the time, I, I pick one off the pot, as, uh, pick one off the stove, so to speak, and, and, and start putting stuff in, into it. Um, so the the I have you know, other ideas that I want to work on, and then I get a chance to, and I do. So how long does it take If it works, if, it's, you know, if I don't run into any knots in the wood, which happens, maybe two years, something like that. Um, but I also have two small kids, so I don't, it's not always clear to me what my writing time is. <laughs> um, Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.